Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on WBAI in New York City on Trauma Code. Uh, and I have with us uh, in a minute uh, to join us uh, the author of uh, book Inheritance, Baynard Woods, uh, to have a, a very interesting conversation about uh, sort of white supremacy in the family. Um, but before I do that, uh, my co-host Dr. Raphael cannot be in studio today, uh, but uh, we've been listening to the news and she called me right before the show and made sure we, uh, have to, you know, being a trauma code responding to traumas, there was two just about mass shootings or maybe not quite meeting the definition at universities today at uh, University of Virginia where one football player shot three others and also in Idaho where I don't know the details, but there's also uh, University of Idaho killing. So a reminder sort of of the crisis we're in and the work uh, that we have to do and why we, you know, go out every day to take care of, of trauma, you know, in the streets, in the, in the hospital and, and operating room anywhere else. And of course, uh, you know, the elections matter and, uh, there's still more to come, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with either party in control of the Senate, I guess. Um, but uh, so I'm going to have on with us today a uh, a friend of mine and an author of uh, the recent book, uh, Inheritance. Baynard, are you with us? I am. Yeah, man. Good to talk with you, Simon. Uh, and great to have you on. So, uh, Baynard, I know you as an author, uh, first at, the, at kind of an alt-daily, but uh, you, um, we're going to talk about an important book that you just read, but um, one of my favorite books that I've ever read is one of your books called uh, I've Got a Monster about uh, Baltimore police corruption and the criminality out of the headquarters of the Baltimore Police Department. Um, so I, we're not going to talk much about that, but to start the show, I definitely recommend that to anybody who hasn't read it. And we have an interview where we talk about uh, the trial bef- before you even wrote the book, which also is fascinating if anyone wants to look that up. Um, but um, I will have you on today. Yeah, to no, t- I'll add on that before we move on. We do, uh, my co-writer and I, Brandon Sutterberg, we... Uh, we produced a documentary on it, and uh, at the same time we were writing the book, which came out in 2020, and because of COVID and stuff, the movie was a lot harder to uh, pull off, but it will be available in January. Uh, it'll be premiering in theaters here in Baltimore and there in New York. So uh, the third week of January, people will be able to go see the, uh, the documentary version of I Got a Monster. Excellent, excellent, which was very 
important work, and, and we'll probably have to talk about at some point the dysfunction in that police department. But today I wanted to talk about um, basically an um, what you call an autobiography of whiteness, correct? Can you tell us a little bit uh, just about the book to set it up and uh, and a little bit about that title? Yeah, so I, I started thinking about this book way before I wrote I Got a Monster. In fact, on, uh, right after the uprising here in 2015, following the death of Freddie Gray, there was an attack at uh, the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, the oldest historic black church there and, and uh, really in the country, where a white guy who grew up about 10 miles from me drove from Lexington, South Carolina to Charleston, South Carolina, where my family had uh, bought and sold human beings. And he massacred eight churchgoers, including a state senator, Clementa Pinckney. And uh, at that point, I, I thought I'd been able to just sort of escape my family's history. But reading his manifesto, looking at the um, images he took as inspiration of going to all of these Confederate sites that I had also been taken to as a child, it, it felt kind of like that movie uh, uh, Get Out, you know, where... Um, or not get out the, the other Jordan Peele and us, um, where you know this part of you gets left behind and becomes this monstrous distortion of yourself. Uh, I felt like whiteness was doing that at that moment. And then I covered uh, the rise of Trump and the alt-right uh, from 2016 through about 2018 when started uh, really writing about police again. And, and during that period, it was the same. That, that repressed thing that came back to destroy with Dylan Roof in Charleston by Charlottesville had become a swarm. Um, and so immediately after we turned in, I got a monster. I started right working on a proposal for this because it had been something that just wouldn't leave me alone. And, and I really was trying to do it much more externally than I did. I was trying to draw a line from uh, the red shirts in South Carolina who, uh, who stormed the Capitol, the state Capitol in 1877 overthrew the government, um, reconstruction government. And, uh, you know, that it was before the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Quite an I, echo. I was trying to draw that line, but my editor then wanted, she's a black woman and, and much to her, uh, credit. Cause the other, she told me the book sucked and it kind of did. And she said, you know, I bought this because I wanted to know what it feels like to be a white man right now. And I don't, you need to go back and bring some emotion. And, um, it's a very, very personal book. My dad was dying of ALS when I was writing it in that period, and so it was wildly fast. I mean, I was I was giving her a couple chapters a week. She was editing them while I was writing the next one, and and I used this flood of emotion that I had, and, and my dad's the main part of it. Uh, wow. The flood of emotion I had to go back into my own life and find the moments where there were gaps between my own self conception and my material reality at a given point in my life. And I thought and, that was the place where I could see whiteness at work. And, and uh, Bernard, if, if I can uh, take you a step back for a minute, because I think um, even before, you know, at the beginning of the book, you really start at the beginning, which is your name, right? And I think it's important to start there and understand that. And uh, what's interesting is I left the book in Baltimore, and then I had to listen to the audio book. And in the audiobook version, they don't do this on the title, but in the uh, in the print version, there's a, a line through your name. Uh, can you tell us uh, what does your name mean to you, Baynard Woods, and why do you put a line through it? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's really complicated um, because you know I'm a I'm a reporter, a writer, and your name is your byline. It's it's you know what people know you by publicly as well as as privately, and. I realized that even as I was covering the Baltimore uprising or even as I was covering uh, the anti-fascist fighting against the, the alt-right in Charlottesville or uh, whatever else, Black Lives Matter, that there was a Confederate monument above every story that I wrote that the Baynard family uh, in 1860, just to pick one year, believed they owned more than 700 people. Uh, the Woods family also... Uh, had a long history of, of believing they own people much smaller um, numbers, but like even that math is is, a, is monstrous to have to consider. And um, so I knew that I couldn't change my name because it would continue the cover up that made me unaware of that stuff in the first place. And I also knew that I couldn't just let it 
remain unremarked upon. So I took a, a strategy from uh, deconstruction, French deconstruction, Jacques Derrida, and those people who would, big words like being, that were, the word was insufficient. They would cross the word out, but leave it, both the slash and the word remaining. And I thought to take those tools and put them at the service of American reconstruction um, to act as like crime scene tape around my name uh, and like a journalistic full disclosure warning people that uh, this is the history out of which I am there. And I, and I think, uh, you know, you wrote this book in a very personal way, um, but I think um, what almost kind of haunts this book um, is – uh, kind of what I see in, 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 in a lot of places are these ghosts of our history that are behind our interactions that we're almost completely unaware of and often misunderstanding those histories. So I, I really ap- applaud your, you know, your historical research and your own family and being able to recognize that. And for example, we're in New York City. Um, and a lot of, you know, you talk about your name being a Confederate monument. Uh, you know, the street, the street signs all throughout Brooklyn and New York are full of monuments to slavers, um, and people who profited directly from the slave trade. Um, you know, Bergen Street, Cortelyu, Nostrand, Stuyvesant, these are all last names of, of slavers. You know, slaves were sold on Wall Street. Um, so, you know, and I appreciate, you know, you grew up in South Carolina and you bring a family history that is very connected to the Confederacy and that tradition. Um, but I don't want our New York audience to lose sight of the fact that uh, many places in this country, particularly New York City, have a uh, historical grounding in that in that slave industry as well. Yeah, and and even beyond the the uh, slavery, you know, it's important that my family might be exceptionally bad in the same way <laughs> that the cops we wrote about in the Gun Trace Task Force were exceptionally bad. But the point of the of that book was that. It was the logic of policing extended. And so South Carolina is a particularly totalitarian place for most of its history um, in a way that much of America wasn't. But the conspiracy of whiteness that existed there took a more extreme form, but it also exists throughout the rest of the United States. Uh, and, it, and, you know, a lot of people are like, well, my family came here in 1892, and so we, we are free of this guilt, but that's... Thinking of whiteness as a criminal conspiracy, one of the things that's useful about that is that you don't have to have been involved in a conspiracy at the very beginning uh, to still be a part of that conspiracy. And in fact, you don't have to benefit actually from it at all, as all the uh, you know mobsters uh, and bottoms of rivers and stuff uh, would know. And so when people also say, well, my family has a hard time, I'm not saying that white people haven't had difficult times that, you know, white people aren't human of all of the other stuff. But I am saying that we have been indoctrinated into a criminal conspiracy that we absolutely, uh, you know, the way out of a criminal conspiracy is by naming it, uh, and denouncing it. And so that's the first step that we have to, uh, we have to do to move forward. Wow. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know, um, you know, where you think the, the kind of the heart of the story is, but I think, and uh, hopefully it's not too soon, but I think one of the real cruxes around the story, sort of a fulcrum around the weight, emotional weight of the story, uh, of your family history, um, is, uh, you have an uncle, right? Who was, uh, respond, not an uncle, I'm sorry. You have a, an ancestor who was responsible for lynching someone. Um, you know, maybe we have to have a trigger warning here, but I, I think, there's value in understanding um, that that kind of familial trauma and, and, and community trauma. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is a, a generational kind of trauma on, on many, uh, on many levels. And so, yeah, my, uh, my great grandfather, I am Woods, Irvin McSwain Woods, uh, he was about 18 when the, he was exactly 18 when the Civil War started and lost two of his brothers that fought the whole time. Came back and joined the very beginning of the Klan, uh, as it started in South Carolina. And I had heard when, I didn't hear it till I was about 25, but my dad told me, my grandfather's name was Hernando. And I was living in New Mexico, so I was kind of like, well, why is granddad's name Hernando, uh, you know, very white dude from, from South Carolina? And said, oh, well, his dad had to go hide out in Texas after the war uh, when he killed a man. And, and so something happened there, and he named 
uh, a kid after someone. The naming part turned out to be entirely false, but it gave me this lead. It took me about 20 years or more to 25 years to find uh, who it was that my great-grandfather killed, which was a black county commissioner named Peter J. Lemon. Um, he was murdered. He died the same day as Freddie Gray, April 19th. Uh, but in 1871, when he was coming back from, he got set up to go to a meeting in the town center. No one ever showed up to the meeting. He was coming back. Uh, he'd been attacked by the Klan a couple times and he was ambushed, uh, and shot. Um, I usually refer to it. I, I think lynching is an appropriate word, but like EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, uses that word really starting in more like 1880 and, uh, I do, I tend to, I do use lynching some, but, but political assassination is the other part of what it was because they were actively trying to overthrow Reconstruction. Um, and it wasn't the public display and stuff of it as much as killing someone who had power. Um, and they then covered up the, I, well, first there, there was on the day of his funeral, uh, again, as with, with Freddie Gray, there was a massive march from the funeral that went to the town, confronted the same white men who uh, had done it, but were now acting as the, you know, respectable, responsible men of the town. Uh, and so they, the standoff was pushed off by, by a new uh, coroner's inquest, which I found the documentation of, found the notes for. And finally, uh, shortly after that, the day that Lemon was killed was also the day that Congress passed what was called the KKK Act. The Third Enforcement Act. Grant ended up declaring martial law in nine counties in South Carolina, causing a tremendous number of Klan's leaders, the ones who are wealthy enough to be leaders, to flee the town and hide out either in Texas or in a, a bit of irony in the same town in Canada that had previously harbored, uh, you know, fugitives from enslavement was now all harboring Klansmen, uh, who who were hiding out uh, because they, they wouldn't extrad- extradite them. And there was, was the first sort of extraordinary rendition as well. The the beginning of the Secret Service snuck into Canada, uh, kidnapped the Klansman with chloroform on his face in the street uh, and brought him back to trial. Because they did that, they lost the trial. And then amnesty was, was given to almost all of those uh, murderous Klansmen. I mean, thousands of people were murdered between 1868 and uh, 1876 in South Carolina, but, uh, even up to that point until 1871, hundreds and hundreds of people murdered were all granted amnesty, uh, and that gave them the time to come back and reform as red shirts, uh, to, to overthrow, uh, the government. And my great grandfather ended up becoming a legislature who helped to institute, uh, Jim Crow laws. And they erased Lemon's name from from the record altogether, and so and that's the other side. If, of it, out my name is restoring his name to the record, and that's so much history that you packed into that um, family story. And I think you know part of the history that is not well appreciated. Um, uh, and again, if you're just joining us, this is uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on Trauma Code, and I'm here with our guest, the author of Inheritance and Autobiography of Whiteness, uh, Baynard Woods, uh, talking about the history of white supremacist violence in his family history, basically. Um, and of course, that's American history. And, uh, particularly the, what you get at that I wasn't aware of until the January 6th, um, uh, sort of siege on the Capitol is that history of white supremacist violence to overthrow reconstruction and institute, basically, as I understand it, um, an apartheid, uh, authoritarian state in South Carolina after reconstruction. Is that fair to say, uh, Maynard? Absolutely. And not just South Carolina. It was South Carolina and Mississippi were the last two uh, reconstruction states to fall because they had the largest black majority. And so with all of the, the voter suppression, uh, ballot box stuffing, political violence, uh, they still were able to get to the polls in large enough numbers that, that it was much harder for uh, the white people there, which were always a minority to be able to, uh, to be able to, to steal the election. But once the, I mean, it, we should make no mistake about it that that was the first multiracial democracy in, in American history. And it only lasted about 15 years. Uh, the second multiracial democracy in American history really, or, or for America as a whole, has really only been 60 years now. 
since the Civil Rights Act in, in the 1960s. And so they are absolutely and without a doubt trying to overthrow those rights, take those rights away um, in the rights that were gained during the, the civil rights movement here. Uh, and they're using the same playbook. And so they, they stormed the Capitol. They, they claimed they won the election when they hadn't, uh, claimed the victory, stormed the Capitol. And instead of only occupying it for a few hours in their, their red hats, they occupied it for a few months in their red shirts until the federal troops left. And yeah, in a, uh, in apartheid, Authoritarian regime absolutely was established. It wasn't quite as severe as the totalitarian regime that that had preceded it for two, three hundred years there, um, where a very small minority extracted absolute value by using uh, extreme force against the vast majority. And so it it uh, it really we've we've never looked clearly at the political basis of of many of our states, especially in the South. In totalitarianism. Definitely. And, you know, I, I don't want to talk about this too much. You know, it's, it's, um, pretty morbid, but, um, you know, that, uh, I think it's worth recognizing that tradition and history of white supremacist violence, um, robbing, uh, you know, murdering and robbing people of their property and power. You know, that, for example, I think another history that people are completely or largely unaware of is, of course, um, ho- hopefully I don't have the history slightly wrong, but, uh, Malcolm X's father, uh, whose name I don't have in front of me right now, in Omaha was murdered and his uh, and lost his land. And that's what broke up Malcolm's family when he was young and sent him into uh, into kind of foster care. Um, you know, we know other histories of, I think it was at Huntington Beach uh, in California, where uh, or Manhattan Beach, I think, actually, where they t- took a family's uh, land to make a park. Um, and even, you know, the 1619 Project in- included an episode about the rampant bank fraud in the South being used to steal, um, black farmers property. So this is all part of that is to say a tradition that, uh, continues and, and, and that's why I think it's important to recognize what, you know, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think in your conversation, in the books, the conversations with your father, there's a direct link in your mind or an important link, uh, to the current kind of white supremacist politics, uh, not only of Donald Trump, but he's, he's one of the most powerful examples. That, uh, without being able to see this history of, of white supremacist violence, um, that, uh, that people are kind of lost to this ideology. What do you think about that? Am I misstating that in some way? No, not at all. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we, we are seeing very, I mean, and, and we don't have to, uh, we don't have to extrapolate very much to see it. People like Michael Perutka, who, uh, was running here still re- refuse to concede the, dele- the election uh, for attorney general um, is a neo-Confederate who has a farm named after Confederate people who espouses the political uh, program of people like Martin Gary, who was the one who, who planned out the coup in South Carolina. And they studied it. And so it's not even just an accident or the history rhymes or uh, that kind of stuff. It's that uh, they, they are actively studying this, and they're actively, uh, there's an amazing book, um, I'm forgetting her name now, it'll, it'll pop to me in a minute, but it traces so much of the right-wing money right now back to John C. at Calhoun and his attempts uh, prior to the Civil War to establish minoritarian rule. Um, and they're very, very, people like the, the Cokes uh, are very, very actively influenced by philosophy of people like Calhoun. Yeah. And so, you know, um, anything else about uh, the book important? Uh, I, I want to get, um, well, I would say one thing I think is valuable about the book is how personal the story is to you. Before we get into that family dynamic a little bit, anything else in the, in that family history that you think is important to talk about or could put in context that we haven't yet? I mean, the, the thing that I do... Uh, you know, with, with what we were just talking about, I, we believe often that our families don't know these things, but, um, you know, people have gotten better. White people have gotten a little bit better at like plantation sites now. We'll deal pretty well with, uh, here's, here's all of the suffering that people, that black people, uh, had to endure here. And we, we feel very, uh, 
Solomon and stuff, but we don't, we're not yet good at all at looking at what it meant that our white ancestors were, uh, the ones who put them through such monstrous pain, were living in the middle of a concentration camp. And like the way that that comes down to us, because the way that comes down to us is through love. You know, that's the horrendousness of it is that my grandmother say, who said that, oh, the people that her family had enslaved were happy. Uh, well, she was told that on, on her grandfather's knee, um, her grandmother's knee. She told it to my father. She told it to me. And, uh, so when I found, so she grew up on this island, Edisto Island, very center of the slaveocracy, just outside of Charleston. Uh, very, very few white families with a massive African population of enslaved people. And Sherman took the Bay of Buford in 1863, where the Edisto's own, gave the land to the newly freed people and said, you can have this as long as you keep farming through the, uh, through the war to support the war effort. They did as early as 1865. It was taken back, given back to the landowners and they wrote a letter. The, the Freedmen's Bureau or the, the Freedmen's Committee there wrote a letter that, that said, you know, they were your enemy for four years and you're giving this land back, but they're our enemy for all time. And so it was on the record, the truth. And yet my family still embraced this falsehood of it. And, and I think that that's important that we, um, we like to in our, our ordinary lives and in our view of history, we tend to see things not necessarily as they are, but as they make us look better. Um, and, and, I know that's one of my greatest flaws as a person, and so seeing that connects back to um, that same logic of my ancestors is the part that is um, chilling and shaking. And, and the logic that I found in it was, uh, and it was set up in, in 1740 in, in the so-called slave codes in South Carolina that established two different codes of law for white people and for black people. White people were uh, protected by the law and not bound by it. And people of color were bound by the law and not protected by it. Sometimes this is called Will Hoyt's law. Uh, but you see that still today. Say, take the Central Park uh, incident with, the, with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper a couple of years ago. Um, she was breaking the law. She decides she's going to call the police on him uh, because she sees that the purpose of the law is to protect her and to bind him. And so we're still in our own psyches harboring the slave code logic uh, from 1740. It's something that we really need to come to terms with. And to sort of segue you into that next part about the family, we can't do that abstractly. One of the, the starting to think about uh, structural racism has been really useful over the last decade or so for uh, white people trying to deal with whiteness, but then I noticed a point where it had gotten too far, where, oh, well, it's just everywhere, it's just structural, so you go about your business without ever doing anything about it. Uh, I just try to appear a little bit better, and there it becomes a lot like a religion. Uh, you know, you try to appear better than you really are when you go to church, and then you still live your life basically uh, as you did, and so I felt we really had to plumb where that structural racism intersects with those that we love. And so, you know, um, someone who's not from that background, what do we get from reading your book and your perspective looking at um, your family? And I guess that it's kind of a heavy question. I don't know how, if you want to talk more about your family dynamics in terms of uh, especially interacting with your research and your writing on this white supremacist history in your own family. Yeah, I mean, one thing to take out of it, I hope, is I, I worry every time I'm, I do a conversation like this that people are going to see it as just an issues book or as like a uh, white fragility type book that's like an HR manual, and it's very much not that. I think one thing to get from it is that, like, I, it's narrative, it's written very novelistically, and, like, I come through as very, very flawed. It's an, it, it's a chronicle of errors in and idiocy on my part in many ways. And, and uh, so I'm not preaching at people. I'm coming from, from uh, you know, a, a very flawed place myself. And 
you know, my dad is the other main character, I'd say, and a friend of mine, Chuck, that I grew up with, who became a QAnon guy, or both kind of go throughout it. And, and the entire time I was writing it, my dad and I were, were arguing and fighting. Uh, he was a Trump guy. He came with me to the archives in his hometown of Clarendon, South Carolina, Clarendon County, South Carolina. Uh, and we found this chart that said, Dr. Woods plus Maiden Slave, and it was a genealogy of black families descended from my great-grandfather. And then we went and, and we talked about that, and um, we argued more. And, and it died before uh, we had a massive fight on January 6th. Uh, because wow. we'd been, I'd been reading all the stuff I'd been telling about this. We see it happen. And he had just been diagnosed with ALS. And I didn't even quite know what that meant yet. And so the next months were just truly grim. Um, and I finally realized that it's not religion. A deathbed conversion is pointless when it comes to racism and white supremacy. And, and um, so I devoted myself when it came to him to just caring for him as I could, uh, trying to make his life more comfortable. And then going back to the town Manning and Clarendon County, Working with an older black activist there, George Frierson, who, an historian who, uh, just a, a remarkable man. And we, I was lucky enough that he reached out to me also wanting to know about Peter Lemon. So we went, uh, on the 150th anniversary, found where Lemon was assassinated, found where Lemon was buried. Uh, after I finished writing the book before it was out, we presented to the county council there, um, asking them to name their building after name of the Peter Lemon Memorial uh, administrative building or whatever. And we're going to, this April, we're going to have a uh, dedicate a new tombstone to Lemon in the place where we know he was buried, but where there's no marker. Um, and in a way, that seems like how I had to do it, uh, is look for a way to address the issues without just wasting my time arguing with my dad about it, who was not going to make it anyway. Um, but it's so complicated. I mean, he has five brothers who are all still alive, and they they were all Democrats even. He was the only Trumper among them, uh, which is real rare for white baby boomers from small-town rural South Carolina. But still, they kind of all quit talking to me after the book came out. Um, and... And I, I guess I was uninvited from Thanksgiving and whatever else. So even people who are are liberal in whatever way, I think have a hard time seeing the way that all of this intersects with people that they love. They, uh, you know, I, I realized that at Charlottesville, I, I seeing people willing to kill for statues. What in, what in the world? And uh, realized that and their mama's lying. And that's something that a lot of Southern dudes want to fight about because their mama told them that Grant and, I mean, that Lee and Jackson and stuff were great and that Grant and uh, Sherman were monsters. And just like my mom told me that. Uh, and I, I feel like, you know, I don't blame my, my family for not uh, wanting to address it, I guess, uh, when it comes to their mother and, and people who... who after all, are dead, but for me, it was important to address. And, and I may have done that in flawed ways. Uh, well, it came across it. as uh, sincere and, and I think valuable, and that's why I asked you to come on the air with us. And this is uh, Trauma Code on WBAI with uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. And I'm here, I'm in the studio. On the line is Baynard Woods, author of Inheritance, an Autobiography of Whiteness. Um and, uh, you know, my co-host uh, can't be here today, uh, Dr. Raphael, um, who's a psychiatrist and a therapist. And, um, she was sort of struck and, and maybe you can, um, you can word this better than me and listening to some of your other interviews and reading some of your work about how kind of, uh, people, uh, white people in particular, she said, <laughs> are very reluctant to look at their own histories in a way kind of in a way that many people are really reluctant to do any kind of therapy because they are not trying to see something about themselves that they won't like. Um, obviously, there's there's more to it than that. Um, but uh, what do you think about that, uh, uh, Baynard? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely, uh, that's fascinating and absolutely right. I mean, um, it's connected to trauma and to, yeah, our self-conceptions and, um, it's hard to look at yourself that way. I mean, the, the truth is, I feel like, is that we're all liars at heart in some way or another. That's what, what being social is in a lot of ways. And so, like, even even I, like, look at this book sometimes to get so personal and so... Uh, and I cringe. The liar in me feels like it's, it's getting uh, thought poured on it. Like when your therapist makes you recognize something that you really don't want to recognize. Uh, and... You know, and I, I thought, I, I was wanting to ask you about this because I thought a lot about, you know, and I, I read when I was doing it a lot about the way that trauma can be passed on and that sort of stuff. And, and but I've read much less about how the trauma of, uh, being a, a victimizer can be passed on. And, but in Greek mythology, we find the example with miasma, which is an inherited curse. It, it, there's similar things in, in, uh, Various traditions, but you know, there we see like the curse of the House of Atreus that ended up causing the Trojan War. Orestes then kills his mother and finally has to put uh, put this inherited curse that goes all the way back to his great 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 grandfather uh, Analyst to rest by making these offers to the Furies. And and I felt like that was the situation that I was in that I couldn't ever address for whatever reason. I couldn't address my own issues until I had also been able to address uh, the issues of my family's history because it's, it is, I think, as, as Dr. Raphael said, it is something about a willingness to see reality. Mm-hmm. And the lost cause mythology and all of that is a willingness to destroy the world rather than to see the truth of it. And we see that in climate denial as well. We see it in so many places. And whiteness and white supremacy which are really inseparable, um, exacerbate and make worse each of these problems that we have until we're actually willing to deal with it. And uh, so, anything else about um, this book that your you know your work either that um, you're proud of or you think is important to share that we haven't really talked about? I mean, uh, I do hope. I mean, one thing that I, I again kind of want to stress is. You know, it's a very serious book, but it's also full of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and stuff like <laughs> yes, that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's a fun read it, for sure. And I kind of, yeah, I wanted to have the, the same with I Got a Monster. We really wanted people to read it not as homework, but because it was, uh, you know, narratively would compel them forward through it, and then you would get all of this stuff. Because we get right-wing ideas snuck to us so often that way. Authoritarianism comes in the guise of every cop show and uh, thriller, and so we wanted to make an anti-fascist thriller and an anti-racist thriller, and kind of the same with this in terms of uh, a coming-of-age story, I guess, and and um, I, I really wanted it to be funny at my own expense, while also being deadly serious at the same time. And, you have and some that, humble flex in there, too. Off, but I yeah. hope that it did that. Yeah, you have some humble flex in there, too, so don't be so modest. Um, but, um, well, what else, anything else you're working on these days that, or that you're reading about or thinking about, um, that, uh, you find very compelling and, and think you'll be working on? Yeah, I, I've been just, it's been nice not to be working on a, a big project, uh, because of going straight from, uh, from monster to this. So I've been doing, um, been able to do a couple things about people whose work I really like rather than, um, he were playing Lee Baines and the Glory Fires, uh, and I spent a little time went on the road with him and did a uh, wrote a, a piece that'll be out in December in Oxford American Magazine uh, about his fights being from from Alabama. Very similar things uh, that I was doing, but him him going dealing with it in music uh, and also looking for sites of resistance in the South in a way that I was really kind of focused on all of the worst stuff. And so that was inspiring. And I got to write about David Milch, the, the TV uh, showrunner and stuff who made Deadwood and uh, John from Cincinnati, whose, whose work I think is, is also amazing. And with that, Deadwood in the same, in 1876, the same year Peter Lemon thing was happening. 
um, big conspiracy. And so it, it's been really nice to be able to, after the last, really since 2016, really 2014, writing only about either dirty cops or white supremacist stuff, it's been really kind of glorious to write about people who, whose work has moved me. And so you've, you've given us, uh, you gave me already before the show some homework to listen to, uh, Lee Baines, uh, and that was his, uh, opened up, uh, the show with his, uh, new song, Old Time Folks, uh, from the album of the same name released this year. Anything else you want to say about that album since you know it better than me? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible album. Uh, Lee has been a very far left sort of DIY punk rocker from, uh, Birmingham doing like, Hundreds of shows a year, um, super road dog, constantly alert, but just a brilliant songwriter. And so this is the one that like, they, and partly because of COVID that they were really able to produce and, uh, and it really moves into sort of more of a country level. Uh, almost like the, the also Alabama artist Waxahachie did real kind of lo-fi poppy stuff and then went to full on country. I got to see her, her new project playing. I saw it to Patina's in New Orleans last week, uh, and it was just, uh, it was transcendent, and I was also brought to, uh, brought to tears by that. Um, and I, I, I'd like to mention also, so I was writing this book in tandem with, with my friend Dee Watkins, uh, who you know, a writer here in Baltimore, and his book, Black Boy Smile, is addressing masculinity, and especially black masculinity, in many of the ways that I was addressing whiteness, and we were trying, we both had the same editor. As well, so we were, he was a very hard editor. We were trading back and forth as we were going along, and, and I just think Dee's book is, uh, it's just tremendously beautiful. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd like to, you know, uh, get people to, uh, listen to Lee Bangs and, and, uh, check out Dee Watkins' Black Boy Smile. Excellent. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately it was just the other day, but a good friend of mine from DC actually, who's gave me a start, uh, on the radio at WPFW just wrote a book, Zane Alameen. Uh, is this how you eat a watermelon? Uh, which I haven't had a chance to read, but he was presenting that over the last week at book openings in New York and DC and Baltimore and elsewhere. So, uh, definitely if you see that, pick that up. Is this how you eat a watermelon by Zane Alamine? Great. And I mean, to people who are just tuning in, uh, if you don't, uh, if you missed it last week, I guess go back and listen to, uh, the interview with Darna Noor. She is one of the smartest people on climate, one of the best writers I know, and just, uh, uh, her work really, uh, we need, so which I hope she's going to be the person that really invents to how to figure out how to really cover, uh, the ecological crisis that we're in. Cause we, we don't, writers don't know how to cover it yet. And we're really grappling, uh, and, and sort of just feeling around trying to get towards that. Well, I appreciate you listening to the show. Uh, he's talking about the episode climate anxiety with Darna Noor. Uh, and of course, uh, this is Trauma Code on WBAI, uh, and you can find all of our episodes on WBAI.org, but also if you search Trauma Code, uh, wherever you get your, uh, podcasts, you'll find, uh, recordings of the previous week episode. Um, so, uh, uh, Baynard, anything else, uh, you want to leave us with before we, uh, say goodbye until next time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that is important to, uh, to think about is the way that recognize until we deal with our own whiteness, wherever you're from, or whatever your family's history is, you don't recognize the effects of your own actions. And so uh, Kwame Ture, uh, Stokely Carmichael, he said that, uh, you know, when you look at a black man, there's a black man standing there. When you look at a white man, there's a white man and an army and navy behind it. And until we understand the way that that army and navy intersects with the people that we with our own lives, then we're never going to know how to be ethical and the actual impact of our actions because we don't understand the force that comes behind them. And trying to figure that out was a big part of, of writing this book. But it's something that, uh, you know, we can all think about in our lives is how does our subjective experience in the, of the world intersect with systems of power that we don't understand. Wow. Uh, so thanks again, Boehner, for joining us. Again, uh, if you're just joining us, this was an interview with Boehner Woods about his uh, new book, Inheritance, an Autobiography of Whiteness, on Trauma Code. Boehner, thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Always a pleasure to talk with you.
gravel in this hot, dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we roll through deserts so hot and through mountains so See me and then I come with the dust And I'm gone With a wind California, Arizona I've worked on your crops Then northward up to Oregon From your ground, I've cut grapes from the vine, set on your table, that light sparkling wine. Green pastures are plenty from dry desert ground. From the grand coulee dam. Where waters run down Every state of this union Migrants have been We come with the dust And we're gone Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Simon Fitzgerald, and that was just an interview uh, with uh, Baynard Woods about his new book, uh, 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 Autobiography of Whiteness. And that song that we just played, um, he, he talked about, uh, what Woody Guthrie meant to him and his family in the book. And that was, uh, Odetta performing Pastures of Plenty, a song by Woody Guthrie. Um, next week, uh, we're going to be, uh, off, uh, another programming will be on the following week. Uh, we're going to be on, uh, you know, we mentioned the shootings in the last 24 hours at two universities, University of Virginia and outside the University of Idaho. Um, and we're going to have on, a group from Philadelphia Gun Violence Research, uh, project, uh, to talk about, uh, I'm sorry, gun violence reporting, to talk about, uh, the journalism and reporting about gun violence and how it can be, uh, more powerful and leading towards a safer and better future. Um, and, uh, you know, if you appreciate the show, if you support the show, definitely, uh, you know, I volunteer to do this, but we need to pay for the resources to put it on the air. Uh, the, uh, the fundraising line is uh, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or you can give online at wbai.org. Uh, and definitely where you can mention the show that you're supporting us so they know what we're doing is worthwhile. Uh, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we're going to finish the show with another South Carolinian, uh, some Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs>
ones are still around. It's a good thing there are new boosters targeted to take them out. The new bivalent boosters are here. Bullseye. Everyone five and older should get boosted today. To learn more, visit nyc.gov slash vaccine finder or call 877-VAX4-NYC. That message brought to you by the New York City Department of Health. This is WBAI New York. Things happen fast on the street. When you're driving, your speed can feel slow. But if you hit someone, it's terrifyingly fast. Drivers, look for pedestrians and cyclists and slow your turns to five miles per hour. Speeding ruins lives. Slow down. This message brought to you by the New York City Vision Zero Initiative.